0: The arrival of COVID-19 since early last year has shifted the political conversation in a panoply of ways. Two, in particular, stand out, however. The first is how some claim the pandemic, which has killed millions and led to an unprecedented economic demobilization in peacetime, led to a return of the real. That is to say, it presented a threat so immediate and overwhelming that it tore through the previous common sense, which was quickly revealed, in fact, as a series of myths. The second is how any conversation around a response to COVID-19 is conjoined, quite understandably, to debates around surveillance and power. An example of this is the debate surrounding COVID passports. Sure, they may help, many say, but that does not merit giving the state such extraordinary access to our private lives and further ability to constrain our freedoms. Both of these points, as well as many others, are discussed at length by Benjamin Bratton in his new book, The Revenge of the Real, Politics for a Post-Pandemic World. For Bratton, the task of contemporary politics, something confirmed by COVID-19, is the need to construct a positive biopolitics through which planetary society can deliberately compose itself. This is a task which he sees the European and North American left as generally unprepared for, their mental furniture still arranged around the War on Terror, and the state of exception. So is the inadequate response to COVID-19 at a state level less the result of individual incompetence or corruption, but rather how our system of government and prevailing orthodoxies fail to address problems on a planetary scale? And what does that mean for any hopes to mitigate climate change over the rest of this century? What is boomer theory? And why does Bratton have a particular gripe with one of the most influential living philosophers today, Giorgio Agamben? One of the big conclusions of the crisis, which came pretty early on, in fact, was how the response to COVID-19 revealed the twilight of Anglo-America. That is to say, the responses of the United States and Europe, but particularly Britain, were clearly almost bizarrely ineffective compared to those of East Asia. What's your explanation for that? And where does it fit in with some of the bigger ideas guiding your book?
1: Thank you, Aaron, for the question. It's a complicated one. The argument that i propose around this is foremost that we should, among other things, look at the pandemic as a kind of massive involuntary experiment in comparative governance. That is, that the virus was a kind of control variable that affected every country, every political culture. Certain ones did better, certain ones did worse, and to greater or lesser degree, the results are available to to see. One of the things that was quite clear, I think, is that the recent wave of populist politics, particularly right wing populist politics, and the regimes that came to power at the crest of that wave, did extraordinarily poorly. And so, the first point, the, the clearest point to make, is that this the kind of anti politics the regimes are built on a delegitimation of. Of secular governmentality in and of itself, Trump, Bolsonaro, Modi, Johnson, and so forth. That this mode of, of kind of politics of of, of myth doesn't work. Um, it works to perhaps to organize and mobilize constituencies around forms of social myth, but it doesn't work as a structure of gov- governance. So I mean, this should be should be clear. But there's more to it than this, um, and as you hint. What I suspect and what I'm concerned with is that there's, in a way, a kind of deeper rot, particularly within, w- within the West, in relationship to the broader culture of, let's say, the culture around government mentality and the ways in which political philosophy, political programs, political thought hasn't been able to meet, the, meet this moment and, and for some time. So I see it in, in, at least in two regards. One is, quite obviously, over the past generation or two, a dismantling of the state by neoliberalism except for, of course, police functions, military functions, and so forth. But a general obvious turn toward a, a suspicion of the principle of public governance as a viable mechanism for the deliberate procedural composition and organization of society. But that logic, in some ways, also parallels tendencies and, and I think sort of cultural shifts on, on the left during the same period Of a kind of suspicion of not just authority in an abstract sense, but the capacities and functions of governance ability to actually structure and enforce enforce structures within society in any kind of uh, viable and, and, and durable way. There is, in other words, a kind of crisis of political culture in the West that is separate from the policy failures. And so in your introduction, when you indicated that there's both institutional failures and also personal failures. there's of course both. Part of the real work of the populist regimes was a kind of deliberate staffing of governments with with incompetence. Uh, and so we have uh, we, we have the fruits to bear of that as well. But there is something deeper at work about the a uh, uh, kind of suspicion of of self-organization in in this regard. And as we might see, there's a comparison to be drawn with the ways in which the pandemic was addressed in many uh, East Asian countries. And, and I don't mean to set up too too strong of a kind of binary or dichotomous sort of approach here um, by suggesting that Asia did well and the West did bad. There's many ways in which China uh, in, in particular obviously dealt with this in ways that were totally, totally disastrous in very different kinds of ways. But if we do look at the countries that did do particularly well, Taiwan, South Korea, there were policy measures that were implemented that worked well, that kept the economy open, that kept the schools open, that allowed people to go about their daily lives in ways that allowed the countries to be open and free much earlier than the West attempted to reopen. But these policies were ones that quite clearly never would have been possible to implement in many parts of the West in Texas or Florida or, or, or Italy or England as well. And the reason for this is not just, not only a crisis of, of policy imagination, but also a problem within political culture. And so the suggestion that I make is that this is not just about the pandemic. This problem has to do with how it is that looking forward for the rest of this this century, as politics becomes increasingly planetary, around issues of climate change, around issues of migration, around issues of what constitutes the future of citizenship, uh, and, and and so on, that the inability or the, the, the kind of willful refusal to enter into, to deal with the, the kinds of issues in such a way that, that a planetary society would be able to rationally and equitably model and compose itself, uh, is one that doesn't uh, that may have very negative That may continue to have very negative consequences beyond anything of, of anything anything around the pandemic and so let me just wrap this but it's quickly saying as far as i'm concerned the lockdowns are a policy failure that when you have to have lo- when you ha- when it essentially has lockdowns it's because the, that country's ability to sense what's going on to intervene directly into it to rely upon what should have been already well prepared, uh, inclusive and equitable healthcare systems is, is not a, not available to it. And so it has to rely on these relatively blunt instruments of, of a complete lockdown. I, I should also say the same thing about the vaccine passes. Like, I, we don't want vaccine passes. Nobody wants vaccine passes. They're symptomatic of a deeper rot. You know, there's much to say about why, uh, you know, why we got ourselves in this situation that something as so something like a vaccine pass would even be you know would be considered likely necessary uh, at this point. The question is not and the is not that we need to sort of accept the fate of a more sort of authoritarian incursions in, into our life, but to understand that these are symptomatic of something much, much deeper that requires a more fundamental rethink.
0: Yeah, I mean, one one of the nice concepts in the book, and there are, there are several, and it's important to say, actually, Ben, that the, the book, you know, you say right at the start, it's written, it was written in a very short span of time. And it's a really, I think, important provocation. And, you know, there's lots of ideas, which I presume you'll develop over the coming, you know, months and years. But one of the ones that really stood out for me was the epidemiological view of society,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, which you say is foundational for a, a post-pandemic politics. Can, can you just explain what an epidemiological view of society is and how it's at odds with The view of society peddled by the likes of Bolsonaro, Trump, Johnson, Modi.
1: Yeah, yeah. The epidemiological view of society is one that I think we, in essence, kind of learned from the our our experiences within the pandemic. Sort of thinking back to that the early days of this, where we're all kind of staring at our. Or at least I was, and everything sort of looking at the charts of like where is this spreading, and where where, where are the numbers going, and and where are there outbreaks, uh, and, and what is the sort of the vector contingencies of what's what is likely to happen next in relationship to this? We all became in that moment a kind of amateur epidemiologists. These the kind of data visualizations, if you like, of the spread became at least for a moment the primary visual culture of the pandemic. And more importantly than that, it became one of the ways in which we came to understand ourselves in relationship to what was happening. That there was something that was, you know, that that I can imagine myself sort of allocentrically in this map um, and seeing like where all these forces shift in relationship to, to, to me in this regard. And what is the me? The me is not this self-contained individual looking out towards the world, but rather I am a biological creature amongst other biological creatures that is co-vulnerable with these other creatures, that is in the process of trying to compose a kind of co-immunity with these other creatures, and that my who I am and what I am now becomes oriented around this common project. that I argue is wisdom. That's not the only way in which we should see society but it is a valuable way in which we should see society and it's one that I think we should pull forward uh, and learn to uh, learn to appreciate a bit more because I think it has a lot to do with the ways in which we will address, hopefully, Many of the other issues of uh, planetary politics that are have have vexed us, uh, the that, that, that vexus and have been quite resistant to our um, to uh, our abilities to uh, abilities to intervene. I think some of it, the epidemiological, also feeds into some of the questions of why some people chose to wear masks and some people didn't choose to wear masks, um, for example. And your question about how this differs from the, the populist regimes, uh, this the most obvious response to this is that there is there is a theory of society that is implicit or endemic in the decision not to wear a mask. That it's not just a kind of knee-jerk reflex. There is a political cosmology at work. It's one that holds that society is primarily organized of atomic self-contained liberal individuals who choose or choose not to enter into external social relations and the society is the aggregation of these of, 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 the, of these choices relations. It's a kind of an internalization not just of a kind of homo economicus, it's an internalization of a, of a certain kind of Protestant ethics. It's an internalization of, of a libertarian ethics. It's an internalization of, of, of a number of kinds of things. but it does represent a particular kind of theory of society. And it is one that I argue that the pandemic and the epidemiological view, which we all in one way or another more or less had to confront and negotiate, it is upended in some degree by this epidemiological view. This is one of the revenges of the real, if you like, that there is beneath the symbolic layer of society, beneath the the, the sense of one's internal egocentric individuality, against one's sense of the meaningfulness of the world, there is something deeper going on. There is a biochemical, biological, physical reality that is indifferent to all of that noise that can be known, that can be modeled, that can be acted upon, but on only on its own terms. And what I'm suggesting ultimately is that on its own terms, what it means to know it and act upon it is also to know yourself in relation to it. And to know yourself into relation to it demands a certain kind of self-objectification, to see oneself as a biochemical object in relationship to these forces in in, in such a way that, as I discuss in other chapters, recalibrates a theory of society, recalibrates this theory of ethics as well.
0: Yeah, and I think, uh, I mean, it, obviously, inimical within that idea of society is a different relationship to nature. Mm-hmm. And what what better than a pathogen which passes between species to explain our horizontal relationships to other creatures, particularly, you know, mammals? Mm. Um, and I, I think where you talk about the changes this creates in terms of subjectivity, so you've already talked about this previously, for that worldview of sort of. That liberal worldview, self contained, atomistic, subjectivity is interior, now it's exterior. Now we view ourselves with these charts, all this data. And I think, you know, tens of millions of people in this country, in Britain, were doing precisely what you're talking about at the height of the pandemic, looking at the data oh. and trends uh-huh. and were, were perceiving themselves, as you write in the book, as objects rather than subjects, acting with, you know, the cause and effect on, on other objects within very complex systems and within the space of mm-hmm. a few months we all really understood this and i i think what you say about the mask and the sort of aversion of the mask is basically um a, a rejection of that entire reality it's not an opinion it's a reality i think it's very similar as well with how you get these conspiracy theories about how china caused this and look maybe 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 it was a lab leak you know i'm not i'm not going to discount any plausible um, sort of genesis of this thing, but we do know that you know mul- multiple um, pandemics have started because of species spillover um whether it's c- other coronaviruses or hiv aids or you know from eating bush meat et etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm-hmm. And yet there's a kind of, a, again, there's a kind of implicit within the rejection of even that possibility of saying, well, no, we're, we're elevated above the rest of the, the physical world. We're something special. And I think the way you close this out is great. And I think it really does explain, again, the kind of the people who, who hate wearing the masks, who, who think, you know, 5G's got something to do with it, who think, you know, the lab leak was, you know, it was originally a Chinese chemical biological weapon the way you close this out is to say, look, the kind of deranged, highly ignorant response from these people is very similar to how a century ago, a century and a half ago, you saw responses to sort of the Darwinian worldview in opposition to creationism. Can you go into that a little bit? And do you think there are real sort of continuities there?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, I definitely do. Um, So let me step back sort of for a moment. Um, This term nature, part of what is also revealed by this, particularly in terms of the conditionality of our response to it. The the development of a vaccine, for example, multiple vaccines, which are biotechnologies of co-immunization. They are technologies with which we are actively and deliberately redefining the borders between us and viral life. There is something deeply artificial about this process, that it's just as real, it is just as physical, it is just as material, but it is artificial. And I Mm -hmm. think the artificiality of this I think is also, I want to suggest, one of the things that is disturbing to certain kinds of worldviews, let's say. And I also want to say, just to make it very clear to your to your listeners, um, I also don't like wearing masks. I don't think anyone in the right mind likes wearing masks. Um, the book is a book about why the governing response to the pandemic of the last years was a disaster. The book is not a defense of the governing responses over the last o- over the last year. It's an it's an argument about why, how did we get in this mess? How did we get to the point that the largest economies, the most technologically advanced societies we're unable to deal with this in a ways other than were utterly shambolic that ended up turning our, our sports arenas into, into makeshift morgues. The question about the, the mass, though, let me, let me extend it this way. Um, one of the things I talk about in the book is what I call the ethics of the object, which extends a little bit of what you were, what, what you were sort of suggesting. And what do I mean by this? Well, I'm being obviously rather, you know, simplifying this, but in the history of, of, of the philosophy of ethics, there is a a deep emphasis on a kind of subjective moral calibration of one's thinking and one's intentionality. That is, if you want to do good in the world, the first thing you need to do is to properly calibrate your thinking about yourself in relationship to this world. And if you can properly calibrate your thinking just so, that you as the protagonist of your uh, re- relations with the world that these good thoughts will be made manifest externally, and that the goodness that you pose in the world is basically an externalization of your of, of your of your good inner moral state. Right. This is this is a kind of you know a basic principle of 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 not only ethics but of uh, you know pro- Protestant cultures more generally. Um, what we saw though i think in the decision of why i wore a mask why many you know many people decided to wear a mask was a different kind of ethical calibration that is you come to realize that if you come in contact with the stranger you you may cause them harm by infecting them whether you like them or not like the fact that you that you have a positive moral disposition towards this person that you have a uh, you know that you have love for this person or you have hate for this person is totally irrelevant in terms of whether or not your proximity to this person could kill them or not. That, that, your, that your subjective moral status is, is irrelevant to this question. In order to sort of calibrate your social ethical relations with this person, it's not a matter of kind of calibration of subjectivity, but a calibration of one's objectivity. To see oneself as a biological object amongst a community of other biological, as a member of an immunological commons if you like, uh, that has a certain degree of respons- has a degree of responsibility to another, and this is where I think one version of epidemiological mode of society is not just about data visualization and, and abstraction; it's also about what we what we do and what we don't do. But to your point about Darwin, this represents in a way a kind of little a little Copernican turn. You know, if a Copernican turns are moments where some way in which we imagine ourselves as being not just the center of the universe. Um, but, but, uh, that the universe op- operates according to, uh, a, a kind of our intuitive sense of, of, of how it ap- appears in some kind of way, but through some means, usually of technical abstraction, telescopes, microscopes, whatever, we come to realize that it doesn't work that way. We come to realize that, that we are, uh, we are objects among other objects, that we are animals among other animals and so forth. And this is, the grasping and encounter with this this materialism, this objective animal state in which we find ourselves, and an understanding not just that this animality doesn't just mean barbarism, that all of the most noble artistic and scientific and technical accomplishments that we have composed are also are also come out of this objective animal state, if 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 you want to think of it this way, this this condition of being an object. That this is something that is not just politically strange, ideologically strange. It's ontologically strange. It is disruptive to uh, endemic and deep cosmologies. And it is not at all surprising that uh, the, the people would res- would have responded in, responded in this way.
0: I guess that folds into another big idea in the book, which is an outgrowth of this idea of the epidemiological view of society, which is your call for a, a positive biopolitics. Um, which I think in your own words, you say managing a post-anthropocene world requires a positive biopolitics on a planetary scale. Again, for lots of, for lots, of, for lots of listeners, maybe regular listeners of RFM are used to big words with James Butler. But c- can you unpack that sentence a bit? Managing a post-anthropocene world requires a positive biopolitics on a planetary scale. And how does that differ to a negative biopolitics?
1: Sure. So first of all, I should say that, again, tying this question to the observation that really the most pressing political issues, that is the questions of how it is that power is mobilized for the purposes of societal self-composition are planetary in scale and scope. That doesn't mean that the local doesn't matter. It doesn't mean the very small doesn't matter. We're talking about viruses after all, the very small and carbon. And in climate change, we're talking about carbon dioxide molecule accumulation, the very small matters a lot. But the planetary is, com- is so composed of both the very large and the very small, but there is no politics going forward that is not also a philosophy of planetarity. The question in this regard is, what, is the, what do we do now? If we were to imagine what a viable 21st century, what a viable 22nd century will be like on a fragile planet that is wounded, much of the life is, is, itself, is, is put in peril, not, not the least of which uh, human life, what should that composition be? What should be the condition for a, a viable planetarity going forward? And how is it that uh, agency, power leverage uh, should be employed for purposes of that viability so the positive biopolitics that I'm re- that I'm sort of suggesting and I should say that for the Foucauldians, uh in the audience who will who will raise their hand and say yes, but it wasn't Foucault's biopolitics always a positive biopolitics yes, of course the valence of positive is not um, it's not like electrons and protons. It's not positive as in we're very, very sure of it. Um, it is positive in the sense to which it is an enrollment of, of political philosophy in the affirmation of the project of the conceptualization and composition of, of a viable planetarity that is inclusive, that is rational, that is equitable, and so forth. This has everything to do with how we construct the immunological commons in relationship to viral life and microbial life more generally. It has everything to do with how we define and deal with what climate change actually is. The only really effective response to anthropogenic climate change is going to be anthropogenic itself. It's going to be equally anthropogenic, artificial, if you like. And that the as soon as we learn to embrace this artificiality, then, it, then the project of composition begins. Now the negative what I what I sort of use as a kind of shorthand for negative biopolitics would be trying to differentiate this to the way in which political philosophy has in the you know at least since the the kind of post 68 era of continental philosophy has tended to deal with and approach the questions of the interrelationships between biology science politics the body uh, the nat- nature in some sort of reified way. And to put it bluntly, a, a kind of f- foundational suspicion of all the ways in which systems that are imbued with power model or act upon life, particularly human life, to see these as either implicitly or explicitly totalitarian, authoritarian illegitimate, or at the very least, deeply suspicious. Um, I think the kind of vulgar reading of Foucault has set this in motion, uh, I think, but we certainly see it in in the work of a a lot of other people. Most notoriously, the work of the Italian philosopher and theologian Giorgio Agamben, whose uh, whose I've been I've read been reading since I was an undergraduate very important figure within continental philosophy, whose work on what he calls bare life, uh, homo sacer, the zoe bios distinction, state of exception, so forth and so on. Many of these terminologies have become part of our basic political vocabulary, but his program uh, is one that borders on, in many cases, doesn't even border on, it is deeply in the field of a kind of reactionary vitalism an understanding that life is a a kind of unknowable force. And he sometimes will be very explicit that when it it, it becomes rationalized or abstracted by a scientific vision or technological intervention, that this is ultimately on a metaphysical level, indistinguishable from fascism and literally indistinguishable from the camps of World War II. He he argues that the camps of World War II were not just this horrific moment of, of annihilation, but that they represent the apotheosis of the scientific view of life itself as a kind of degraded, objectified form, stripped of any kind of spiritual significance or, or, or meaning. But one of the things that I, I think is quite clear about Agamben's thought is he's a, a kind of informed by a deeply Heideggerian view of the world, Heideggerian view of, of technology, a Heideggerian view of, of nature, is that the kind of demystified sense of what it means to be a human in relationship to the long arc of the emergence of life and the long arc of the emergence of intelligence that, for example, a Darwinian view would afford us is something that is not only blind to, but he explicitly rejects um, and explicitly rejects on terms that are um, increasingly bizarre, uh, I- increasingly disturbing. Um, he wrote a number of, of pieces over the last 15 months, wrote a number of pieces about the pandemic that that not just his critics, but many of his longtime admirers um, have found uh, incredibly disturbing. The question I think at this point is, is, is more to do with how much of this was there all along? How much of this was already there? Like, Was this always part of what negative biopolitics was about? Was it always this paranoid? Was it always this mystical? Was it always this traditionalist? Was it always this reactionary? And what I'm suggesting is that Look, the issues for what a planetary politics need to be, and therefore what a planetary political philosophy need to be for the next century or two, are deeply bound with our understanding of biology, are deeply bound with our understanding of of ecology and biochemistry, not just as things over there to study, but as things that constitute what we are that are the basis of our intelligence, that are the basis of our, our, our creativity, that are the basis of our capacity to act. And if we see all of these only as institutions to be deconstructed and dismantled and refused and resisted based on some kind of naive view of, of life as a, as a kind of mystical force, then we're really, really screwed.
0: Uh, let's take it down a dial then from somebody like an Agamben and sort of critical theory within the academy. Um, you also take the task, you know, sort of just generic anti-surveillance politics, which is on that sort of a similar continuum. You would have somebody like a Julian Assange doesn't need to be reading Giorgio Agamben to be saying, well, actually, all accumulations of data hmm. are necessarily bad. It should all be open. It should all be transparent. Or perhaps more, more, more recently, somebody like um, uh, Shoshana Zuboff, mm-hmm. you know, who talks about actually the point is with this data collection, it needs to be open and uh, this is sort of deeply injurious to human liberty and so on. Do, do, you, do you think that that frame of an, an quote-unquote anti-surveillance politics is is at odds with effectively cultivating that, that planetary political philosophy? I think it can be.
1: Let's take Zuboff, for example. Shoshana Zuboff's critique of what she calls surveillance capitalism and her critique of the ways in which large platforms produce data about individual lives in in ways that are proprietary, in ways that are often predatory, uh, in ways that are, as I see it, catastrophic misuses of what planetary scale computation could provide to society. In one of my previous books called The Stack on software and sovereignty, I talk about the historical emergence of planetary scale computation, the way in which it operates as both a, a technological infrastructure, but also as a political and institutional infrastructure. But for it to be geared entirely around this kind of the, the, the modeling and surveillance of individual lives for the purposes of motivating and accelerating consumer behavior, kind of Las Vegas style. Slot machine kind of behavioral microeconomics again just to say like I'm complete I, I would I would go further in my critique of this than she does actually as like why this is a catastrophic misuse of the emergence of the accidental megastructure as I call it of plant of the stack of planetary scale computation and again climate I, I will say that climate change climate science is a great example of of an extremely positive use of of, of planetary scale computation and it would be inclusive of what I would call the positive biopolitics of this. That, and, and let me be clear, what we call climate change, the idea of climate change is itself an epistemological accomplishment of planetary scale computation. Without the senses and modelers and simulation and capacity to aggregate all of these data points into a heuristic model, the very idea of climate change doesn't exist. So when you ask the question of what is it that planetary scale computation might contribute to the mitigation of climate change, first, remember that the very idea of climate change is one of the things that it has contributed. Having said that, it is a horrific misuse of this to model this entirely on the kind of behavioristic manipulation of in, of individual consumers. We are in agreement on this with, with Zuba. The problem I have with the way it should take, should take this is basically twofold. One, there is a and I think we see this not just in her work, but more generally, a a tragic and inappropriate and self-defeating overinflation of the concept of quote unquote surveillance to refer to any and all forms of deliberate, structured, programmatic data production for the purposes of modeling complex social or worldly behavior, that all forms of this are susceptible at one point or another to being accused of being in a, of surveillance uh and therefore sort of automatic the uh, the automatic script that runs right after that is that this is a foucauldian panopticon that this is tur- this is a turning of life into prison that this is that this is again a kind of authoritarian totalitarian oh. misuse so forth and so on so this this is also one of the ways in which the habit of the from negative biopolitics, you know, might be also linked to here linked to here as well. So the first thing I'm kind of suggesting is that we can't do this, that just looking at that we have to have a more sophisticated vocabulary. We have to be able to differentiate, uh, we have to be able to in, in, uh, differentiate ad tracking and police surveillance and, and oppression of certain neighborhoods or people from all the ways in which a society needs to sense and model and simulate and act back upon itself recursively. We have to be able to do this. We have to have quantitative reason at the scale of the problems that we need to reason about. And so it's not an argument that, oh, you know what? Surveillance is good. The argument is that we need a much more nuanced vocabulary to talk about the different kinds of surveillance that are really there. Now, the other part, I think that goes hand in hand with this is a sense of who gets to be modeled in way or another. and When I had this conversation with some of my students in a, a, a class we were doing during the pandemic, they felt, you know, they said all forms of the, these kinds of, of sensing and modeling were incursions on their properly autonomous uh, individuality and subjectivity. And I had a number of other students, however, who raised their hand and said, you know, I'm from, an, it, 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 usually they were from, uh less wealthy neighborhoods. And they said, you know, when I when the pandemic started, no one in my neighborhood could get tested. No one had access to a test. No one had access to uh, no one had access to any of this kind of care. We would have loved to have been surveilled earlier on in the pandemic. And so what, one of the other issues that, that which is raised with this is whether there's a, there, just as there's a question of a kind of over-sensing and over-modeling, there is also, when we're talking about what constitutes the, the equity and justice of a, of a positive biopolitics is also is means inclusiveness. Let me put it this way, being a body that counts being a body that, that, that is sensed, that is modeled, that, that counts as part of the, the way in which society senses and makes senses of itself is an extraordinarily important consideration to say the very least. And it's one that is often completely missed. The questions of surveillance are all about a counter-weaponization between, a liber- between an individual and a platform. Um, that it's all about individual privacy and that the questions of the politics of surveillance are about counter weaponizing and protecting that individual privacy, which is also last point where I do differ with Zuboff. Zuboff's argument in many regards, and there's lots of things to admire about this book, but the remedies that emerge from this are ones that make sense from a law school perspective. Uh, they are ones that make sense from from an, a legalistic understanding. They're ones that, in essence, understand the problem as an inappropriate contractual relationship between a individual and a corporation or a platform, and that platform has manipulated and is, has manipulated their relationship with this individual in ways that are inappropriate, and that there are remedies for this individual it takes. But the, the remedies are often posed. And you see this in you know documentaries like things like social dilemma documentary on Netflix and so forth and so on, uh, is that there needs to be a, a kind of, as I say, a kind of counter-weaponization of this private individual in relationship to the to the platform. The thing that's never identified, never asked, never critiqued is the problem that we are using planetary scale computation. For the sensing and modeling of individual actors in the first place. This is the fundamental mistake of the way in which we're mobilizing this system. These systems should be used for things like climate science. They should be used for things like epidemiological science and the ability for us to sense and model and act upon ourselves. They should not be used for a grotesque over-individuation of society, and the, and then the kind of behavioristic acceleration of this grotesque over individuation. The solution to this, the response to this, is not is to disindividuate, if you like, and another Copernican turn as well. The kind of a de-anthropocentric de-anthropo- size, whatever, um, the roles and functions of planetary scale computation.
0: Yeah, I think the the, the way that you, again, it's sort of another petty formulation in the book. You say we've created, like you say, this. Uh, this mega structure of global computation, and we are using it to distract one another to sell ad revenues, which is just obviously completely crazy. When you think about climate change, when you think about questions of social reproduction, when you think about global inequality, resource scarcity, all these things that it could be used for, and it's used for this other thing instead. And I think when you put it like that, you just... So it was a real sort of intellectual slap around the face for me. It was very sort of a big wake up call. Let
1: me, let me even put it in a way even more bizarre. Like we, we have this emergence of this long term emergence You know, over, you know, human, human intelligence emerges over a period of millions of years and then accelerates over tens of thousands of years. Very recently, do we have the emergence of things like machine intelligence or anything sort of like the kinds of computational capacities to at least simulate forms of intelligence that, that we have and the way in which this what should be you know a a, a world altering force for the you know for how it is that we might liberate ourselves and organize ourselves is instead being driven by the the coal that we're firing this whole thing with is an economy of symbolic attention Everything is about what can you make the monkeys look at? What are the shiny objects that we would sort of observe in this kind of way? And so, what is, in essence, what are the forms of cultural signification and semiotic brinkmanship that can be accelerated such that you can hold this, the the monkey's attention and motivate their sense of meaning such that you can keep this machine going? And the problem is not. The technology. The problem is not computation. The problem is not algorithm. The problem is this kind of ascendance to the spectacle of meaningfulness that we have. We've in essence sort of trapped ourselves into as a con- in, in, within this kind of flywheel feedback loop that's drive that, that's driving all of this. And and this is an aspect of the problem. Let's say that uh, Zuboff's response is is generally not not able to address.
0: You write how anxieties about technology are projected into anxieties about China. Can you elaborate on the relationship between a hostility to modernity, anti-modernity and growing xenophobia?
1: Yeah. More recently, I think, you know, the questions about the role of 5G as potentially a start, you know, sort of this as well is is clearly a kind of religious technophobia that future scholars will have a lot of fun trying to interpret. It, the sinophobia within the west is a old you know is is a kind of an old set of tropes sometimes very quite simplistic but you know among these is is the vision of the yellow horde that authoritarianism is endemic to quote the oriental mind that china is a place where life is cheap where nobody cares about privacy and and the idea of a yellow horde as a kind of inhuman biomass has now been replaced by a vision of Chinese as a kind of soulless, mindless robot people who are in the process of, of of taking things over, and you know, with the same kind of insect metaphors that we had in the 1940s, 1920s, 1890s. Uh, it's the same shit. Part of it is has to do with, I, I think, a sense that the comf- the kind com- of political cosmological position of the West in the world is changing. That the post-post Cold War era is over, uh, and that the, the the geopolitics and the and people sense of their own uh, the, the primacy and centrality and protagonism, if you like, of their country, and you know, nation is, is is shifting quite a lot. So I, I think there is a little bit of a sense of an aspect of that. The, none of this is to say that you know it's a sort of apology for the PRC. There's a sense that what China is doing is is essentially you know we should. We should get over it and just sort of admire this. I, 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 there is a lot that we can learn from China. I'll just say this you know, qu- quite clearly. The idea that, that the Western view, the Western way of organizing a society is intrinsically superior to an Asian way of organizing society, and that in time, Asia will become more Western if we just sort of wait long enough, the kind of Clintonian uh, response to this is just, it's not only just wrong, it's just, it's insulting and naive. There's a lot that the West can learn from China in terms of its, its logics of organization, logics of planning, logics of the relationship between private sector and public sector uh, in an in infrastructural politics. This is not to say that we'd be naive about any of the other, in, 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 any of the things that, that China should do, but it, it's something that has. Uh, uh, there's a conversation needs to shift rather quickly I, I happen to spend a lot of time in China because I'm a also a visiting professor at, at NYU Shanghai uh, and it shows, sometimes just totally bizarre to me when I read the Western representations of, of kind of what life is like there we're in the midst of a kind of cross-political spectrum explosion of of, of orientalism uh, in relation in relationship to China
0: so I, I, I guess going back to that question of, of technology and, and, and xenophobia, you know, for as long as we've had industrial society, let's go back to the late, the late 18th century, you know, the beginning of the sort of the common ad, uh, adoption of the steam engine. Since then, basically, the West, first Britain, Europe, but then North American civilization has been at the forefront of technological modernity. For the first time in 250 years, that's about to change. Do, do you think that that does something quite profound to the Western psyche? Do you think that's going to lead to quite strange outcomes? Well, yeah,
1: it, it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy in a certain sort of regard. Like to the extent to like I, the last thing that we want is a new Cold War. I think between between China and the West around this as well. I think this would be politically disastrous. I mean, there are ways, uh, and and you know, there's other other things to kind of suggest from this as well. But if if the response is as you kind of suggest that. Um, the shift towards towards Asia uh, continues. the rotation towards Asia continues in this kind of regard. and that the response in the West is a kind of uh, reject modernity embrace tradition uh, kind, kind of thing where we're, we're all you know things will as long as we can kind of go back to some sort of sense of, of, of a, what the economy used to be like and what nations used to be like, um, then somehow that will reverse this trend. That somehow, like to push back upon this trend in this rotation, is to kind of rewind things back to a particular kind of way. As well, then, you're quite correct. What this will do is will put the West in a position where it will be less able to push back against China on a geopolitical stage in the ways that it should, um, less able to compete and to provide its workers with the kinds of the 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 with with the with the lives that they sort of deserve. It will become, in essence, a kind of self fulfilling prophecy.
0: So I want to just talk briefly about your theory of the Karen, um, who, who's sort of portrayed as a, a villainous archetype of the of the pandemic, not, not by you, but I think as you highlight it, sort of in popular culture. Uh, and this is a quote from the book, page 100. It is revelatory that the character of Karen would come to be portrayed both by the person who invokes police powers to enforce her delusions of race and class privilege, and the person who stands her ground against the imaginary police state Asking her to not infect her fellow shoppers. They are the same person for a reason. What's the relationship between between those two aspects of the of the character?
1: I mean, I think that this, particularly, you know, sort of earlier in the pandemic, the, the Karen trope was was quite pervasive for both in both these ways, right? I mean, there's a whole chapter in the book you recall about the George Floyd protests, which I argue is like really needs to be understood as part of and internal and intrinsic to this whole. The whole pandemic culture and the way in which this second version of Karen, if you like, the one who is uh pointing her camera uh at people that she doesn't think belong there, becomes inverted. Uh the gaze of the phone cam becomes inverted as as she becomes the, the, the object of other people's concern as she uh flips out, having been asked to wear sort of a mask. Now, having said that, um, the way in which I introduced this sort of is, is to basically suggest that, you know, is to talk about like why heroes and villains is the wrong way to think about what's at stake for the kind of the, the pandemic, like the reduction of what's at stake to kind of the good people versus the bad people. You know, we, we have bad guys like Karen, which is to be sure, like invokes all kinds of, it is itself a misogynistic trope that it makes use of other misogynistic tropes of the kind of hysterical woman and so forth the positioning of this is not to sort of reify the Karen the the, the trope in this as well, but to talk about the ways in which we fall back on these kinds of characterizations, uh, trying to make sense of this, of, of, ter- of, of making people and things and problems and structures into character types, into archetypes by which it becomes possible to make these kinds of moralistic distinctions between um, between good behavior and good behavior and, and bad behavior, the thing about Karen that makes this particularly peculiar is that she be, she uh, though we have we have male Karens for sure, but she becomes the sort of exaggerated figure of the person who is obsessed with social hygiene. You know, being the, sort of the finger wagging person, making sure that everyone else is doing the thing that they're supposed to be doing, and yet, and that that whole dynamic turns on her. All of a sudden, that she becomes the object of her own technology of scorn, uh, and is so confused uh, and her uh, by by this by this turn of events uh, that we cannot help but stare like as if uh, as a kind of sociological car crash uh, at her at her dismay.
0: Yeah, I think sticking with that idea about how you know if you want to explain the re- the reaction from broad swathes of of, of the right from, you know, small c conservatives to to the last 18 months. I think that's exactly right what they're desperately trying to do. And this extends all the way up to, you know, obviously government. What they're desperately trying to do is to is to reimpose that level of the mythical and that, that, those, those fictions over, back over the real. Yep. And you see this even with like some of the data now with, with, um, with, with cases or hospitalizations. And people say, look, well, the cases are going down. Not that many people are dying. Look, we, we, did, we didn't need to do all these things. We, we don't need to wear masks. You say, That's happening because of decisive interventions based upon data, based upon science, like vaccines, which has allowed that to happen. And you saw it last year as well, when people would say, after the lockdowns, nobody's dying, this thing doesn't exist anymore. Was, well, nobody's dying or very few people are dying because we've not left the house for two months, you know? Yeah. Clearly when we, yeah, yeah. when we leave the house again, it will start back up. I mean, it's not particularly difficult yeah. to understand. It's cause and effect. But like you say- You for, see, you, from-
1: you didn't need to take out your appendix. You never had appendicitis.
0: Yeah, it's a complete inability to engage with the kind of cause and effect. Like you say, again, we aren't. I am not an object. It's just this incredible psychological, not aversion, resistance to it, utter resistance to it.
1: I don't know there needs to be another, we need to come up with a name for this phenomenon, because it's a quite general one, uh, increasingly one that is central to the ways in which politics works, which would go something like what you just described, where people are unconvinced of the necessity for some kind of policy intervention and then that policy intervention is, success- is successfully deployed the conclusion of which is therefore that that policy intervention was not needed in the first place like that 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 needs a name i don't know quite what it is but there's a netflix series to be had uh if we f- f- figure this one out um but more generally the this distinction between the um the symbolic and the real here. I talk a little bit about in the book of this difference between sovereign power and biopower, which again drawing on the sort of Foucauldian regime is like the sovereign power in Foucault's work refers to the body of the king, the prestige of the nation, the metaphysical aura of the flag. Uh, the presence and centrality of the capital, the sacred texts that organize the nation and the society into a, into a community. Uh, and Foucault argues that, over, that part of the process of modernity is a disestablishment of the primacy of sovereign power with the emergence of biopower, which is the organization of populations according to quantitative methods, bureaucratic categorizations, scientific observation the agency of of experts and and the production of the individual case so forth and so on and and one of the things i think we see as i argue in the book with the return of right wing populist politics over the last few years is a kind of revenge of sovereign power that there is a rejection of the the rejection of the turn towards biopower which is going on for whatever two you know 200 and 300 years for a really direct, formulaic return to the a principle of the primacy of sovereign power, which is clearly a kind a sense that the symbolic realm has sovereignty over the material, physical realm itself, and that the the that if the symbolic decides the symbolic realms decides it to be so, then the material realm will follow suit. It is exactly what they think postmodernism is. What the right-wing populists accuse postmodernism of being of a kind of fantastic linguistic determinism by which thoughts create reality is the fundamental formula of
0: their political philosophy. I think there's definitely a relationship as well between, you know, I think the, the broader context about the revenge of the real and how, you know, all these myths and, you know, this, this ideological layer is kind of just revealed to be what it is, which is, you know, just Fictitious, constructed, I mean, useful fictions often, but constructed and kind of beneath it is this biological reality, which is ultimately what drives, you know, the planet and all, all the things which depend upon it. And I, I look at like the figure of the Karen and then I think about Brexiteers who um, don't want immigrants coming to this country, uh, but do want free movement to be able to go to the EU. They don't want to have to get extra visas. They don't want have to pay money. And, and 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 you know and and so basically they want freedom of movement they want a borderless world but just for them um and and i think that, that idea and obviously the, the figure of the karen intersects with ideas of whiteness and white privilege and this idea that i am free to um produce and reproduce space as i see fit but nobody else is uh, clearly that's a sense of privilege and entitlement which which comes from a bunch of sort of hi- historically embedded realities. But then, you know, like you said, the real emerges and it says, no, you can't, you have to wear a mask. Or when it comes to traveling abroad, well, sorry. I mean, I agree that the, the lockdowns weren't, were were a representation of political failure, but people basically saying, well, I'm sorry, whoever you are, how much you're worth, you know, white, black, brown, we are not letting people leave or enter from these particular countries. And, that was an interesting, again, a kind of interesting thing for me, the relationship between, I know it's true that you're saying it's a, it's an archetype, but how that's disturbed and how it's it's elevated so clearly in in a, in a, in a moment of crisis when you do have the return of the real.
1: You know, on this real thing, well, there's a passage where I quote, um, I'm quoting uh, Alexander Galloway, who is in turn quoting Lacan, which is not always advisable, but... The, the de- one of the psychoanalytic definitions of the hysteric is someone who enjoys instead of obeying by slipping from the symbolic into the real, right? That they're trying to sort of, you know, discipline them in some way or, you know, organize them and they just refuse to be, refuse this. Like they just stay in this level of the real regardless of any kind of attempts to name them or categorize them or do something in this, this, this way. And what I'm suggesting is like this version of the, of the hysteric, with all quotes implied, is actually kind of an inverse of this. It's a kind of a, a negating the real, refusing the real, so as to slip back into the symbolic. To sort of like, there's this symbolic register that provides them this position of privilege, a position of, of supervision, a position of, of, of agency, and the real intervenes, which they refuse on behalf of the symbolic. So it's a kind of inverse hysteric, at least in terms of the classical psychoanalytic turn of this as well. And and your point is completely well taken, like the way in which Karen is set up as this sort of female figure and as an individual of this villain character in this great drama is really misses the point in terms of the bigger picture here, in terms of the ways in which dynamics of of political privilege work in the same way, where there ends up becoming these reversals um, by which, uh, by in the contradictions of these reversals, they become extremely disorienting for those who uh, find themselves on the wrong end of the of the t- table once it's turned.
0: Finally, what happens if we fail to formulate a meaningful, positive biopolitics in the aftermath of COVID nineteen? Well,
1: it's not good. <laughs> I, I think that in many ways, the way in which that the question of of of, preca- of, of ecological and planetary precarity are, is being dealt with in ways that are more informed by a kind of millennialist apocalyptic eschatological thinking than it is by uh, a real understanding of the stakes of extinction and the end of the, the actual real potential of the of, of the, en- at the end of meaning. There are some who, in, in many ways, who when presented with the possibility that the world doesn't need to end, will push back and will even suggest in sort of a way that this is naive or this is a naive form of optimism. There are some for which I, I think they're actually less concerned with the future being canceled than they are concerned with the last judgment being canceled. That unless there is some kind of ultimate reckoning at the end of the cycle, mm-hmm. They're not interested in participating in this in this in this structure of this program. I, I and I think this is again a, a kind of millennialist thought in the in the Christian tradition, and it's one that is that is we need to find a, a way out of. But I, I think the key thing to sort of understand here is that, is that if there is this, um, if there continues to be a kind of uh, suspicion or uh, abdication of our capacity for agency capacity for the composition the co- conception and composition of a viable planetarity a rejection and withdrawal of the means by which this would come about perhaps that is because you know there's a kind of adherence to a, a kind of judgment day thinking that that ends up becoming more important than actually building a, a way out of this or not the problem is that as the problems get worse, that as the problems that we need to face, that the, the, all of the problems of planetary politics, of climate change, migration, the futures of citizenship, so forth and so on, all of these problems get more complicated, get more worse. The, the more that we, re, we we step back from the positions, uh, multiple positions of agency will allow us to intervene within this, the more difficult those problems will kind of get. It becomes a vicious cycle. The response to anthropogenic climate change Needs to be equally anthropogenic. That politics is planetary, going forward. That's non. It's not negotiable. It's not. It's not something that can be chosen or not chosen. It's not a matter of optimism or pessimism. It always has been. And once it's been disclosed and demystified in this way, there's kind of, there's kind of no going back. And that's kind of where I kind of see it at this point. It's like there, there really isn't any going back. The question is, what next? What what forward? What what do we um, uh, do? We have the wherewithal to actually uh, build our way out of this.
0: This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to navaramedia.com/support.